Alrighty. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark, where else? It's Thursday night. Wednesday night. Mark 13. It's a week from Wednesday. <laughs> Something like that. Anyways, Mark 13. And this is going to be, When Shall the End Be? is the title, part one. So we're just going to read through verse 13 tonight. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1 through 13. And it says, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Spirit." Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And Father, I just ask you, as I always do, I just ask that you'll be with us here tonight, speak clearly to us, uh, I ask you'll help me in, in, in my thinking, just direct my thoughts and the words I say to uh, encourage and and bless us tonight and I just thank you for your presence here with us Lord and we do that in Jesus name so uh, what we have here in Mark 13 is what's known as the Olivet Discourse and so Jesus has left the temple now for the final time he's never going to return back to the temple he walks through the Kidron Valley and he walks up the Mount of Olives and then he sits down and in answers to his disciples' questions, he gives an overview of the future. So some things he says are going to be in the near future, and other things are in the distance future. So he talks about the destruction of the temple and the things in the distance. He talks about his second coming and the end of the world as we know it. So he really makes no clear distinction between the two. And most things that he says have what I believe are a dual Fulfillment. They're fulfilled in the near future and in the distant future. So they'll be fulfilled before the temple's destroyed, but also some things will be fulfilled all throughout church history up to the end. And so I like the way one guy explained it. It's like when you are out in Colorado and you see two mountains off in the distance, they'll look like they're like right next to each other or sometimes right on top of each other. And then as you get close, you realize, well, there's this huge distance between them. Because at the time this was spoken, nobody would have thought, yeah, there's going to be 2,000 years difference between when he's saying and the fulfillment. It's been over 2,000 years, hasn't it? It's been a long time. So here is, though, the most important aspect of Mark 13 that we need to remember, that Jesus is not giving us a clear timetable for when things will happen. In fact, he really discourages us from being sign watchers. So the obvious signs of wars, famines, earthquake, he says, don't worry about those when they happen. He says, the end is not yet. Look what it says in verse 7. He says, and when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says, be not troubled. For such things must needs be. But what does he say at the end of verse 7? He said, but the end shall not be yet. And so the problem is people that are looking for signs is what he's saying here. They're going to be seduced. 
That's what he says. Look down in verses 22 to 23. We didn't read these, but look at him. He says, for false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show what? Signs and wonders. And what will they do? To seduce, if possible, even the elect. He says, but you take heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. In fact, he says that what we need to be doing is watching and praying and to be ready at all times because rather than here's this sign that tells us, he's saying you'll have no clue when the end is going to come. That's really what he says. We can know that it's near, right? And it is near, I believe. But there's no clue. We have no idea when it's going to be the day the hour, or I would say even the year. I've seen too many people try to say it's going to be, and they make it seem like it's going to be in the next year, the next three years, the next five years, the next ten years, and then it doesn't happen, and people have made plans according to that. And I'm saying they've almost all been wrong, haven't they? Nobody would have said 30 years ago that we're going to be in 2017. Nobody was saying that. Nobody I was listening to (laughs) that I respected And so the point is, our Lord says, instead of trying to get this timetable down, he says we need to be always ready lest we be caught unprepared, totally unprepared. Because he said when the end does come, it is going to come how? Suddenly, like what? A snare. Isn't that what he says? It's going to be like students that are warned. In a class, you need to keep up on your reading because any day I may give a pop quiz, the teacher tells him, and he doesn't do it right away. And so what happens? They become slack. And I've been in classes like this, and suddenly one day, everybody get out a piece of paper. We're going to have a pop quiz, and that's when your stomach is down at your feet because you realize, man, I haven't read for a week, right? And you get that feeling, and there's no time to get ready now. That's what you're telling yourself. Hey, preparation time is over. It's past. And all of a sudden, all those TV shows you watch, they weren't worth it. And that's what Jesus has said is going to happen. So you're looking, you're in Matthew 13. Look, look down here a little bit further. Look what it says in verses 32 to 37, and we'll deal with this later. But just to read it now, he says, to make the point, he says, but of that day... And of that hour knows no man. And despite the fact he said that, how many people have predicted the day and the hour and the year, right? He says, the angels which in heaven don't know it, neither the Son but the Father only. And so what does he say, verse 33? Take ye heed, because you don't know. Watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. So he's given us things to do. Verse 35, watch ye therefore, for you know not, he's saying it again, when the master of the house comes, whether it's going to be at evening or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, if you're not ready, verse 36, it's going to be like that pop quiz, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping In verse 37, he says, And what I say unto you, I say unto all, and that is what? It's watch. And how many of us are caught up in today in this world with the technology and life's plans, and we tend to forget what is the most important thing he tells us? To watch. We have to ask ourselves, are we spiritually asleep? That would be the opposite of that, right? The other thing, though, that I'm saying just in the overall picture of this, so I'm saying I think the overall chapter 13, his thing is not so much on, hey, here's how you're going to know. And that people are all caught up into that. Hey, you have an end time event seminar and it's going to be packed. That's just the way things are. And he's saying it's not so much that as you need to be ready because you don't know. We just read it. It's pretty clear. That's the overall tone, I think, of what he's saying there in chapter 13. The other aspect of this discourse that I think we can take comfort from is that history is not in the hands of men. So history, because of what he says here, is not in the hands of some ruler, I'm starting to say something, ruler that's got ballistic missiles in North Korea. He's not the one determining our fate, is he? 
You watch too much of the news and you'll think he is, right? Or it's not some dictator that's killing his own people, like what's happened in, in Syria. Or these groups, I mean, they're within the United States, outside of the United States. I would call terrorist groups people that show up with with body armor on and dressed in black and clubs and ready to beat somebody that doesn't agree with them, right? I mean, it's happening everywhere. Terrorist groups that are trying to get people to conform to their agenda. And there's a lot of them like that, right? And so they are not the ones that are in control because it's not, I like this, I've heard this many times, it's not history, it's his story. He's the one determining the outcome, right? He is the author of history. The world's a stage and we're the characters, aren't we? That's the way it works. So listen, there very well may be, who knows, a third world war, right? And I'm saying, is that cause to panic because there's a third world war? Jesus, we just read it. I mean, this would be the second time. I think I got maybe two, three, maybe four times we'll look at verse 7. So there's a third world war happens. Everyone's all just scared to death about that. Well, what does he say in verse 7? If you go back, read it again. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. But he says there, the end is not yet. So troubled, he's saying, don't be disturbed is what the word means. Don't be frightened. Don't be alarmed at wars. He's saying they're necessary. That's what that word is. It means they must be. And why is that? I'll tell you in a little bit. And it's, but it's not some big hidden secret. It's pretty obvious, really. But what the point I'm trying to make is Jesus is predicting everything up unto the end, every detail that happens. And they said the early Christians, the fact that he predicted this destruction of the temple and 40 years later it happened exactly like he said, gave them a lot of confidence in the Lord's prophecy and his predictions, right? But as we've said, our God reigns and it is his story. And here's what we need to see and take comfort from. It's going to end. One day, won't it? It will end, but it is not going to end with evil men and the devil with their foot on our neck, so to speak, on top of us, is it? That's not the way it's going to end. Because he's told us this, we are going to be more than conquerors. Nikeo, like the word Nike. Nikeo, we are going to be more than conquerors through him that loved us in the end. Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. He said, in the world you'll have tribulation. But, he said, be of good cheer. He didn't end it there. In the world you have tribulation. He didn't put a period there. He put a comma. But be of good cheer because he says, I have Nikeo. I have overcome the world. And so... If he has been victorious, he's saying, when my spirit is in you and my power is in you, we will be victorious also. That's what he says in Revelation 12. Tribulation gets you nervous. Well, it says that the accuser of the brethren is cast down to the earth. But what does it say? The same word is used. Is that trouble for the saints? Well, in one point it says he overcomes them. But it says in Revelation 12 that they overcame, they nikeoed him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And how else? The word of their testimony. And the way they're able to do that is the secret for it all to work is it says they loved not their lives unto death. When you get to that point, nothing will conquer you. When you love not your life, even unto death. If you're afraid of dying, you got problems, right? Nobody, I'm not saying anybody likes the thought of suffering and being in pain, but we shouldn't be afraid to die, should we? There's an issue there because we aren't waiting to get everlasting life. We're not like Catholics where we're wondering and we won't know until we get to the end, are we? What he said, if you believe in me, condemnation is over. The day of judgment is no longer something to be feared, and that's why men fear death. They're afraid of that day of judgment, and that is past for us. Jesus took our judgment on the cross, didn't he? And so we don't have to fear death. So back in our text here in chapter 13, looking in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples, they leave the temple, and one of his disciples is in all of the temple. Look at it. It says, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, 
see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So the temple at that time, it was something to be impressed with. Herod the Great outdid himself, so to speak. He just loved to build all these big monstrous buildings. So he'd been 50 years building the temple, and he still wasn't done in the days of Jesus. Most of it was finished. But here's the thing you don't hear much about. It was considered the eighth wonder of the world in its day. It rose up to 165 feet at its tallest wall, which is part of the sanctuary. And here's how huge it was. He made it way bigger than Solomon ever had it. Twelve football fields, if you could imagine that, could fit inside the temple structure. Twelve football fields. The, block, the blocks of stone that Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about were so big that at first people didn't believe it. But they were 45 to 60 feet in length, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep unbelievably big and to this day they don't know they hewed those things out perfectly square they don't know how they hewed them out the way they did and how they stacked them on top of each other they used no mortar and you couldn't stick a blade a knife blade in between them they were that tight it's just an unbelievable structure and those things weighed a million pounds over a million pounds each so the sanctuary was the centerpiece of it all. Like I said, one of the walls, that the walls on it rose 165 feet, and it was covered with gold and with silver and with crimson and with purple. And when the sun would hit that thing, they said it was unbelievable to look on. And here's how Josephus described the temple. Listen, this is his words. He says, now the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. I mean, it was unbelievable to look on is what they said. One historian said it's easy to overlook that the temple complex in Jerusalem was probably the most awesome building in the ancient world. So the grandfather of Caligula, Emperor Caligula, came and looked at it. And when he came back to Rome, that was all he could talk about was the magnificence of the sanctuary and the temple. So here's the point of all of that. We're seeing here they are just in all of that place. Master, you're not paying as much attention to this as we are. Look at this place. Is this not unbelievable? That's what they're saying. Get a side of this. So every Jew, including the disciples, were in awe of the temple. And not only that, but it gave them a sense of security. Because this is the place where God dwelt. And he's with them. And why would he ever destroy something like that? And they all would have known Psalm 132, 14, that... God, the Lord said, this is my resting place forever. So it gave him a sense of security. And everybody, the disciples, Herod, Josephus, they're all impressed with the temple. It was outwardly impressive. But Jesus wasn't impressed with all the grandeur and the gold at all, was he? <laughs> His only concern was what? His only concern about that temple was what happened on the inside. He didn't care about what it looked like on the outside. So what had he done? He'd driven out the money changers and those that sold animals. And he said, this temple may outwardly look impressive, right? But on the inside, he says, you have made it a den of thieves. So remember, when he cursed the fig tree, he said, it looks promising. You got leaves on there. It looks like something should be there. But I get up there and there's no fruit. There's nothing there. He's saying, this is the way the temple is. And symbolically, when he was cursing the fig tree, that's what he was doing. Except he's going to do it now here for real. He's saying this temple outwardly is magnificent. It should be a place that's standing for the holiness of God, his glory, his splendor. People, my people should come in here and worship me in spirit and in truth. There should be that fruit. And he's saying, yet there's not. There is no such fruit. And when he cursed the fig tree, it withered from the roots down to the ground, didn't it? Totally level to the ground. 
And that's what Jesus said is going to happen to this temple. They're all impressed with it. Fifty years in the making, nothing like it. The whole world's impressed. But he says the temple's going to be just like that fig tree. Look in verse 2. And Jesus answering said unto him, this disciple that's impressed with the temple, he said, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Stone by stone, it would be thrown down. And that literally happened. And so, as the guy said, the disciples, they dropped their jaws over these building blocks. And Jesus says, no, they're stumbling blocks. And they're going to be cast down and leveled to the ground. Because this temple is not fulfilling its intended purpose. It's not doing that. And it's going to be destroyed. And here's what Josephus reported about that. He said, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. So by the time God's judgment came on Jerusalem and the temple, they're saying it was so leveled to the ground and the Jews were forbidden to go there by order of Caesar because of all their rebellion. It looked like it had never been inhabited. It was that leveled. That's how complete God's judgment was. It's incredible. So what do we learn from that? So listen, our building, it's important. This building we have right here, right? It's the place we've chosen to meet. And I think we should keep it clean. We shouldn't be spilling food in here, right? And we should respect what we have. We've done decorating. And I've, the reason we did that was it was looking run down. And I feel like that's part of our testimony. We have a place that looks nice, right? I mean, we don't, this isn't elaborate. There's no gold in here. That's, that, we don't even have gold crown molding anymore. We had to paint over that. It kind of looked like gold before, whatever gold leaf, right? But here's the thing. What's important is what for us here? Not what it looks like. Not that all the painting, the carpet matches. We got new chairs when we don't have new chairs. So I'm saying none of that's really that important. It's what's going on on the inside here, right? That God is meeting us. Are we living in such a way that when we come here, he can meet with us? That we've got our attitude and our lives right towards him and our attitude and our life right towards each other. I'm saying it doesn't matter if we get down to 10 people. If we've got that, God will be here. It will. That's what's critical, isn't it? And do we leave this place? That's the other thing. Do we leave this place in a manner worthy of the Lord? We come and hear the word and do we go out and live it? That's what's important, isn't it? The church, the assembly, that's what it is. Because this place could burn down, couldn't it? And does that mean our church is gone? No. I hope you don't think that. Because we could meet in uh, homes. They did. a lot. I know churches that they do meet in homes on purpose. We could meet in homes. We could meet in a barn. We could meet in the park for all that matters. We could meet out in the woods somewhere. We could meet in my backyard and get eaten up by mosquitoes <laughs> for all that matters. But if we're gathered in his name and worshiping in spirit and in truth, the fact of the matter is God will meet with us, won't he? Because it's what's going on on the inside that matters. And he'll bless us. Jesus told the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour comes and now is, he tells her, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him because it's not a building, is it? It's a person, the Lord Jesus. He was the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up. No longer dwells in temples made by hands, does he? He dwells in us individually. We're his temple now. The church is a corporate whole as his temple and us as individuals, right? Because he told him in Matthew 12, he said, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple, right? And he says, I am with you always. Doesn't matter where you are, does it? I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Whether you're in a jungle, we're here, we're out on the workplace, right? He's there with us. So Jesus leaves the temple and he walks up the Mount of Olives and he sits down. Look in verse 3, look what it says. 
And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they asked him some question privately. But the fact that he went up and sat on that Mount of Olives and is facing the temple is symbolic in two ways. I don't know if you remember, but in Ezekiel 11.23, if you ever read Ezekiel, it talks about God had kept warning them that, you know, I will leave this place. You're, you're all enamored with the temple. That means nothing. And in Ezekiel 11.23, it talks about the Spirit, the Lord, the glory of the Lord, actually is the way it's worded, goes up from the temple and goes across east and sits on the Mount of Olives. And that's what the Lord's doing here. Jesus is His presence. He's the Lord. He's leaving the temple for the last time and over on the Mount of Olives. And when He's there, He's given this discourse. What is this discourse about? It culminates in the fact that He says, I am going to return. Well, where is He going to return to? Zechariah 14. Both of His feet are going to be placed firmly where? On the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14. That's where He returns. And so... Peter, James, John, and they, and they add Andrew in here this time. Usually it's those other three. They ask him two questions. Verse 4. The two questions are, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all of these things shall be fulfilled? So they want to know, when is this temple going to be destroyed? You just told us it's going to happen. When is that going to be? And what sign? They're asking for a sign. What sign can you give when all these things will be fulfilled? They're asking him when, and they're asking him what. Now, the what that they're referring to, it's not as clear in Mark, but when you read Matthew's account of the same Olivet Discourse, it's clear that he's talk, they're talking about and asking him about the end of the world, because here is how Matthew's account reads, Matthew 24, 3. They said, tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Because in their mind, it was all going to happen at the same time. They didn't distinguish between all that. And Jesus really didn't help them much here with his answer, right? So here's the thing. They asked for a sign, don't they? Can you see that in verse 4? What shall be the sign, the sign? They're not asking for signs. What shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And he doesn't give them any one sign, does he? Not like what they wanted because... They wanted a figure, a moment, a date that they could put their finger on, just like people today want. And they'll buy books galore. Some guy writes a book telling them that. Instead, what he does is he gives them what they need, not what they want. So I like the way a guy said this. Instructions is what he gives them. Instructions on how to discern the signs of the time so they will not be disheartened by persecution so they won't be panicked by wars. They won't be fooled by appearances or led to apostasy by false prophets during uncertain and trying days. So he's God's saying they have to be able to discern with what has to do with the end of their own little world and what has to do with the end of the world. They need to be able to discern between the two. So the fact that they're being drugged before courts and put in jail and persecuted, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end. That might be the end of their own little world is the point, right? So he gives four signs, I would say, that are not signs. We're going to look at today. They're indicators, in other words. So just because you see these things happen doesn't mean the end of the world's going to come. And there's four of them. Verses 5 to 6, he talks about false prophets. In verses 7 to 8, he talks about wars and disasters. In verses 9 to 11, he talks about persecutions that are coming. And in verses 12 to 13, he talks about apostasy and people in your family turning against you. But he says these are not the end of the world. They're wanting, what sign can tell us that the end of the world's coming? He's saying, well, I'm going to tell you negatively, these things are going to happen, but they are not the end of the world is what he tells them. They may seem like it, like I said, when you're the one that's in the midst of those troubles. But once again, look in verse 7. He says, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled, for such things must needs be. But he says, The end is not yet. Now, I mean, if I'd have been living through Second World War in Europe, I might have thought, This is it. And Hitler is the Antichrist. And he, wouldn't that have been a temptation to think that? It sure seemed like it. And he was a type of all that, I believe. And he's saying it's not the end. He said they're only 
birth pains or sorrows. That's what's at the end of verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, be earthquakes in diverse places, famines, troubles. What does he say at the end? They are the beginning of sorrows, or the word is translated elsewhere, birth pains, birth pangs, however you want to say it. And what do we know about birth pangs or pains? i got to pick one out and stick with it, right? Pains. So some know about that by experience, and others of us know by observation, right? So what's the thing? They start out pretty sporadic and far apart, don't they? And then they start coming closer together with more intensity. And when labor is in full force, they're on top of each other. No relief. And I'm saying right now, I think it's a fact. I'm not wondering about this, that the birth pains are increasing and intensifying. They are. Jesus says, though, here, what does he say to us here in Mark? He's telling us that the birth pains have begun. Now, if you're pregnant and the birth pains have begun, there's a process that has started that is going to increase in frequency and intensity until the birth occurs, right? Isn't that the way it works? And there's not going to be any reversing the process. Too late for that, isn't it? So you can't say, man, I don't want to be involved in birth pains, persecution, wars, apostasy, false teachers. I don't like trouble and pain. Oh, well, it's too late. You don't have a choice. That's all of us in this world. That's all of us sitting in this room. Don't have a choice. The process has begun, and it's rolling right along. And it's going to come to birth. So Jesus is telling us how to cope with labor and not die, spiritually speaking, right? How to cope with labor and not die in the process. Spiritually speaking, that's what he's telling us here. <laughs> and the first admonition he gives us is down in verse 5. And he starts it off saying, take heed. And take heed, that word means to watch out. Verse 5, Jesus answering them, he began to say, take heed. Watch out. says it four times in this chapter. Watch out, take heed, lest any man deceive you for many shall come in my name. That doesn't mean they're going to say they're Jesus, but they're going to come like they have the authority of Jesus. We're speaking in his name, so to speak. They will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and what will they do? How many are they going to deceive, does it say there? They're going to deceive many. Now, how do these false prophets operate in false teachers? And I'm saying it's rampant now, and it's very subtle. Some are more subtle than others. But what I would say is they, they haven't changed in the sense that they give you false hopes. False hopes. And if you would, turn back to Jeremiah 14. I want to look at several places here in Jeremiah. They did it back in his day, and they're doing it in our day. False hopes. So Jeremiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, it says this. He says, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, You'll not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but, you, I, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And then the Lord said unto me, the prophets say, prophesy lies in my name. I didn't send them, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing that is nothing and the deceit of their heart. And therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. He says, by sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. Now, that's hard, isn't it? And what do we have today? I mean, this nation is, I mean, if you can't say this nation is wicked, just, you know, you don't know what wicked is. And said, someone's, you want to hear, people are saying, we want peace prophesied to us. That's what we want to hear about. That's crazy. 
So the thing is, these false prophets, they say, you've got to discern what's being said, and you've got to be ready to deal with what's coming down the pike. Because just because somebody says that bus is not made of metal, and you can stand out in front of it, when it runs you over, you'll realize they were wrong. It wasn't a marshmallow bus. It was made out of metal. Right? It's the way that works. And so turn over to 23, chapter 23, Jeremiah 23. In other words, it doesn't do you any good to deny what's true. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 21. He says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evils of their doings. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. And yet, that's what people want to hear. They want to hear peace and prosperity, and it's just going to keep rolling on because they have itching ears. And I'll say this. I think if a person had a national stage and they were a true teacher or a true prophet, you know what the one word to this nation, if I had a national radio audience and you don't know who I was listening, what would be the one word that you think should come out of a prophet's mouth if he's true? Like more than once. Repent. USA, not think about how you can get all of God's blessings. They're not going to, they, this is Israel, Israel, Jerusalem was experiencing all kinds of prosperity right before to the day Nebuchadnezzar came in there. And if that's an indicator that God's with you, you're deceived. Supposing that gain is godliness from such turn away. That's not any indicator at all, is it? So we're talking about false prophets, and I'm amazed at saints that are drawn into all these. This is the big thing you just see keep happening, all these special revelations that keep coming, all this extra biblical light. So we talked about the death experiences. What about the blood moons? I mean, all this stuff is going to happen because the blood moons came around. I'm saying when you put that in, plug that into Mark 13, it's like, huh? Where do you get that from? I mean, but there's a lot of money to be made telling you, oh, here's a new way to pray. And I'm saying, as they say, follow the money. Because these books become national bestsellers because there's nothing offensive in them. There's nothing helpful in them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, there's all this other stuff that comes with them. Workbooks, journals, DVDs, 20 variations on the same thing is what ends up happening. So it's like... I'm not saying that every book that you read has to have 100% of everything you agree in it or it's poison. My problem is, I guess I'm speaking to our church here, is when people read things and embrace things that contradict what has been clearly taught. Not from me, forget me, from this pulpit for 30 years from Brother Hamilton. Clear truth that we've heard and embraced and all of a sudden it's being let go because of some popular ministry. All of a sudden. And that's where I've got an issue because I've got, I went to a seminary that doesn't agree with things I would teach across here. If I wasn't embracing those things, I mean, I'd just overlook them and on certain things. I didn't, most of it I agreed with that was there. But I've got books I don't agree with everything. But when they start telling me things that are against what I know are true because I've learned from the Word of God and, and experience, but mainly because you learn from the Word of God, I either just read right over that, dismiss it. I mean, you can't be so paranoid of error that, oh, I can't hear anything wrong. It's going to infect me. It's not like that. Truth should prevail. But I mean, for instance, I've talked to too many people here that, I mean, of all places, you know, questions. People questioning me about, is the tongues the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, let me say, I realize there are people out there that are Christians that just sincerely don't see it. I'm not questioning their Christianity. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm talking about people that are in here. All of a sudden, oh, I'm not so sure. And then, and then they're, it's because they're influenced by these people that I've seen their YouTube videos that are non-charismatic 
They're non-charismatic, and they're going to tell us, I saw one, oh, well, I asked God to give me tongues. And I really meant it, and so it didn't happen. I was sincere, so what, I'm not a good person? And they put it like that. I'm like, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about, for one thing. But, I mean, that's fine. I know they're out there. They have their opinions. Those opinions aren't anything new. That's not my issue. My issue is when people in here become influenced by that, and you can't talk to them. Because I'm saying, for me, I'm not wondering about is tongues the evidence. I feel it's fairly clear, very clear. I'm not wondering at all. So... Let's go back to Mark 13, because look what he says here. We're talking about the false prophets. Verses 22 to 23, he says, For false Christ and false prophets shall rise, and they'll show signs and wonders, we read this earlier, to seduce, if it were possible, to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. And he says, But take ye heed. He says, Behold, I have foretold you all these things. He tells us in advance there's going to be signs given by false prophets. And he's saying these signs are going to seduce you. That means to lead you astray. To lead you astray and off the path of truth. That is the design of the signs. So a brother here just told me he went to a church, visited a church. They didn't have, and this is common, this is not that uncommon. Churches that they don't have someone there speaking live, it's a video presentation. And that's what they're having a video presentation. It was a question and answer session. And the pastor is the one on the video, but they're asking questions about things, and his answer has nothing to do with the Bible. It has all to do with his experience, and his experience totally contradicts the Bible. But does anybody bother? Does that bother anybody that's part of the church? No. They love it. I'm saying that's what's going on, and that's what's going to happen. And keep getting worse. Because there is a spirit. Because a lot of these guys that are pot, there are very charismatic. And they have a way of seducing people. It's a spirit that works through them. I mean, how do you think Adolf Hitler gained control of Germany? It wasn't because those people were stupid. It's because they weren't willing to accept truth. So turn, if you would, back to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2. Look what it says, beginning in verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. And how does he come? With all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. And why? Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And because they didn't receive the love of the truth, verse 11, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I'm saying the only safeguard you have is not reading left behind books or blood books, blood moon books. The only safeguard we really have is what? Loving the truth. Walking in the truth. Because when God sends a strong delusion to a person because they don't love the truth, you're not going to undelude yourself from God's delusion. You're not going to overcome that, is the point. So, back to Mark 13, and the second warning Jesus gives is about wars and natural disasters. Here we are at verse 7 again. We shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. He says, don't be troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there will be famines and troubles. But he said these are just the beginning of sorrows. So he's saying there the fact there's wars, earthquakes, flooding, famines, it shouldn't cause us alarm like it's the end of the world. In fact, it's a command. It's an imperative. He says not to be troubled. He said those things must, needs be, they have to happen. Why? 
isn't it obvious? We live in a sinful world and God has to judge sin. And one of the ways he has judged sin is through what? War. Judged his own people that way. Didn't he send Assyria against his own people? Babylon? Through war? That's what he does. But here the Lord is telling us, though, that we don't have to be troubled or fear. And because no war is out of his control, is it? So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. What if a country whatever country invaded America, are you going to be like, this wasn't supposed to happen. I thought I would get raptured. Is that what you're going to think? I'm saying <laughs> there is no promise in the New Testament that we will be part of a country, you can be part of a country that never experiences war, is there? I mean, what makes us so special? I'm telling you, though, I'm telling you, if the bombs start dropping, people are going to think, I missed the rapture. This shouldn't be happening. Then that very well could happen, and that means he's saying the end is not yet, didn't he? That doesn't mean that. So, if another nation did invade us, I'm saying the word of Jesus hasn't changed, has it? These things must needs be, but the end is not yet. Isn't that what we read? Four times we read it. So he's just trying to help us endure the labor. It very well may happen. I don't know. But we can't get shook up if it does, right? Because the Lord will be with us and get us through us. What do you think those Christians are doing in all those nations that are experiencing war? They're having to trust the Lord, aren't they? Amen. All right, the third warning is about persecution, verses 9 to 11. He says, but take heed to yourselves, for they'll deliver you up to councils, to synagogues. You'll be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. The gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. We talked about this. Neither do you premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but your Father that is in heaven will speak through you, won't he? So why does Jesus say, take heed to yourselves? Because if you got trouble coming, and a, a, somebody on the throne that's going to be persecuted, you can get all caught up into all of that, can't you? All the things going around you, and then you're surprised. What, why is this happening to me? He said, take heed to yourself. Watch yourself. Be ready. Don't be surprised when persecution comes for you being a Christian. And let me ask you, why are Christians persecuted? Why? If they faithfully preach and live the gospel, you will be persecuted. Isn't that what it says? For all that are godly shall suffer persecution. That's not my opinion. That's what it says in the Bible. That's what Jesus said. And listen to what Jesus said in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6, he said this, he said, Blessed are you when men shall hate you. That's when you're blessed. When men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Now, that I didn't say a word about anybody getting their head cut off or tortured, did I? Did he say a word about that? What did he say? They'll separate you from their company. They'll hate you. They'll reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And he says, rejoice you in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So if none of that is true for you and I, what's the problem? Listen to what Jesus also said. Woe. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. So we may not be enduring physical persecution in this country, but I don't think people would speak well of us if we took a stand for truth. Do you? I don't think so. And I don't think they'd want to be around as much if we took a stand for truth. Not unbelievers, not unregenerate people. 
And so Jesus says that if we are persecuted, if we're brought before any court, he said, it's not the time to be ashamed. Isn't that what he's saying there? He's saying, no, that's not a time. It's an opportunity for us to give our testimony. And through that, we can preach the gospel. So read the book of Acts. Peter, John, James, and Paul, all of them, they took the opportunity. Paul did not back off, did he? Brother Paul. I mean, his testimony is something that most people would be embarrassed about today. I got knocked to the ground, and I went blind, and his voice comes from heaven. I mean, you know, the world's going to ridicule that, and especially a king. And Paul didn't hesitate to tell it, did he? That's his testimony. And that's how the Lord came to him, and he took advantage of that. Those guys were brought before everything he said, kings, governors, councils. They didn't back off. And I talked about this before, but I said, you know, Brother Hamilton came before the Kentucky General Assembly. I don't remember how it happened. They wanted to talk to him about divine healing, and he didn't back off, did he? He said, this is a time for me to give my testimony and to testify about my Lord, that he has been my healer. And he always had this thing about, I haven't had a medical bill for 30 years. He said that in front of that General Assembly. So there it is. You say, well, it couldn't happen. Well, it did happen to our pastor. <laughs> it very well could happen to us, couldn't it? So here's the thing. Rather than feeling abandoned by God, well, here I am. I've got to go before this council, this, this court. They're bringing me into court. Now he's saying, God says, I'm not abandoning you. You're going to be about around a bunch of enemies and wolves that want to tear you up. He says, I'm going to be right there with you. Because you don't have to worry about it. I will give you what to say. I mean, it doesn't have to be a negative thing, does it? He says, I'll promise to be right there and speak through you. Look what he says there in verse 11. When they'll lead you and deliver you up, he says, don't take any thought what you'll speak, neither don't premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak you, it's not ye that speak, but the Holy Spirit is right there in you, helping you and encouraging you and giving you the words, you and me, right? Amen. And the last warning he gives there, I think is probably the hardest. Look in verse 12. Look what it says. It says, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father, the son, the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. I think that's hard. When your own family's turning against you, I think that would seem like the end of the world for me. <laughs> be pretty close to it, right? Could you, I, mean, I think that's one of the hardest things to imagine is one of my own children rising up and betraying me. Because I'm a Christian, that would be very hard to take. Or what if you're a Christian teenager and your parents disowned you because you were a Christian? You know, this Voice of the Martyrs, we've got this DVD called Beyond the Sun, and this young Muslim in this, I believe it's a true story, is converted while he goes to college in America, and he returns home. He's got a new testament. He puts it under his mattress while his sister's making his bed one morning, and she finds it. And she takes it to the mother and father. The dad confronts him, slaps him, beats him. He's out of the house if he's not going to renounce it. And then he has no place to live. He has no job. His uncle starts hunt, hunting him down like a bloodhound to kill him. He's after him. And there he is. Could you imagine that? That would seem like it was the end. But yet Jesus says it's not the end, but that's the kinds of things. We just read it there. We may have to endure those things before it's all over. Are we willing to do that? And look at verse 13. He says, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, I don't think we're too far from that, right? And so it's the price that we need to be willing to pay, don't we? It's the price that Noah was willing to pay. So it said as he built that ark, he was a preacher of righteousness in an ungodly society that Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, is the day the way it shall be now. And if you read Genesis 6, full of occult, full of violence. I'm saying it could get worse and it will, but those are the kinds of times we're living in. And yet Noah, it says, was a preacher of righteousness. And I'm sure he was mocked. I'm sure he was hated. But he endured to the end, didn't he? 120 years, Noah stayed with it. He didn't back off. The world's getting increasingly more antagonistic and evil towards him in those 120 years. Because God's spirit quit striving with him. And so 
We have to ask ourselves, do we have the commitment and spiritual fortitude to endure what's coming? Because that's what he says there at the end of verse 13. He hated of all men for my namesake, but he that shall endure not partway, not halfway, how far do we have to endure? That person, to the end, shall be saved. So where does that endurance come from? Were you here Sunday and the Sunday before and the Sunday before? That's where it comes from. The trials of our faith that God is putting us through now. The various trials of our faith is what will build that endurance for us to be able to handle and stand against the storms that are coming our way. So we're not enduring physical persecution like people are all around the world, are we? Not that, but various trials, it says. And so we have to endure healing trials, stress trials, love trials. Somebody's treating you wrong, not responding in anger, loving our enemies. On and on, various trials. That is the way God's building endurance in us at this time, right? And so whatever that trial is that he's got you through, that is your opportunity to be ready to endure to the end, to build the spiritual strength, character, and wisdom that we'll need. And if we short-circuit God's plan and we avoid trials at all costs, then we won't be ready. So the key to survival is to let endurance have her perfect work, like James says, isn't it? But we have to build our ark. If we want to endure the storms that are coming, and we do that by staying true to God's word through the trials. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, he moved with fear and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Amen? He endured it to the end. So the birth pangs, they're getting stronger and closer. The world is not getting more friendly towards Christians. They're getting more religious and speaking of love, but they're quickly departing from biblical love and truth. I'm saying, you look at, read Revelation 6, all of those things, the wars, the famines, the persecution, it's reached a climax, and we're headed towards that. So to think it's somehow going to get better is crazy. It's not biblical. It's going to only get worse. So I don't know when the end is going to come. But I can clearly see that all four warnings of Jesus, I say, are becoming more prevalent. Especially became a Christian in 1981, way more prevalent than back then. So like I said, the people I considered godly back then, they never said we'd ever see the year 2000. Right? Heard a guy preach a message, faith for the 80s. We weren't going to get into 1990. And here we are, right? But here's the thing, it's not still, it's not gotten better. It's just taken a little longer, hasn't it? But the pressure's increasing. And there is a lot of pressure today, I'm saying a lot of pressure to back off of the truth that we have been taught. I'm telling you. And my thing is, I'm sticking with my little plan, and that is I fellowship with dead men. And by that, I mean, I don't listen to what these current guys are saying about divine healing. I go get Andrew Murray. Fred Bosworth, A.B. Simpson, guys that walked, that are going to present the truth to me. I'm going to fellowship with them because they're going to encourage me in my faith, not talk me out of it. I don't need that. Right? Fellowship with dead men. Most of these modern guys, they don't understand any of it. And they haven't walked in it. And I'm saying now is not the time to give in to all these pressures, and they are there. In our groups, I'm talking. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about in here. It's not the time to back off of prayer and seeking the Lord, trusting Him only. This is not the time. Jesus said in Luke 18 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. He's saying, in other words, it is necessary. Ought always, that's what that means. It is necessary for men to pray and not to lose heart. Because he goes on to say, people get discouraged. Oh, God's not going to manifest my answer. And he says, no, he will. He says, he will avenge his elect speedily. The answer is going to come. He'll save you when things look bleak if you stay with him. 
And he ends by saying, and this is where I'm going to end tonight. He says at the end of Luke 18, I believe it's verse 8, he says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on earth. And we just have to say for ourselves, don't we, by the grace of God, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. All righty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll just impress your warnings and your encouragement on our hearts today, Lord, that, that you will be with us through all these distressing times, that you are the Lord of history and what's going on, you won't abandon us, your people, Lord, and that when we see all these things happen, we know that the end is not yet and that you will see us through, Lord. And I just ask you that you'll do that for us. You'll encourage us in these end times to stay true to you and not to give in to pressure. I ask that you'll give us as a people discernment over things that are being said and taught and that we can learn to walk with you in a holy and simple way of faith, Lord that we can just trust and obey what you say in your word that is so clear and not be talked out of it. I just ask you that you'll do that for all of us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you stand to your feet.